Global Broadcasting Networks presents Coach Talk Radio. Create the time, money, and lifestyle you want with tips, tricks, and techniques that get you started today from some of the best Internet minds in the business. Now, here are your hosts, Internet brand strategist Sandra Beck. Hey, guys and dolls, this is Sandra Beck, and I'm here with Angela Breidenbach, and she is my lovely co-host today, and we are going to talk about query letters. Now, a query letter is like a one-page letter. It's sent to literary agents or sometimes publishing houses in an effort to get them excited about your book. Most of the time, you get one page, maybe 250, 300 words, to get someone to fall in love with you. The letter should be short, sweet, and definitely to the point. Now, that's what the New York book editors say. Angela, you are a published author. You're um, a president of of the Christian um, Christian yeah Christian Authors Network. You've got dozens of speaking engagements, books, memberships. Like you are the best person I know to answer this question. Why are query letters so hard for people? It's just a letter. Well, it's a different voice in in a lot of ways because when you're writing your book. Um, the book is often written in third person or first person for through a character voice, and you're able to you know expand as, into the story as as far as you want. But in a query letter, it's like you have to sell yourself, and so people trip themselves up immediately in the fact that oh no, it's you know sales, you know uh, you're selling yourself. You're, but really, what you're doing is applying for a job. And so this is a, when you turn in your query letter and your synopsis and your sample chapters, this is really a resume, uh, would be an equivalent of a resume for a job. And you can consider yourself a contracted worker because you work off of contract and things like this. And so you need to present a query letter saying, not only are you interested in this, but you need to tell them a little bit about you, a little bit about your story. And you need to do it in such a concise way. And for writers, we are terrible at at tightening because we love words. So I think a lot of times it's difficult to figure out exactly how to get what we think is all this wonderful material into a really, really short space. Well, and to convey it, what I found, you know, because I help a lot of people with query letters because I was a journalist. I'm pretty good at getting to the point and and putting the bare bones in there and yet make it interesting and compelling. And, you know, it's kind of a little bit of journalism, a little bit of advertising because you want to get people excited. Um, But there's lots of examples out there like writersdigest.com. They've got, you know, 60 different examples. You can look at this because (laughs) history is... um, you know, helps us because success leaves clues. And we talked in the first episode, which if, yeah, if you guys haven't heard our first episode, um, which is about handling rejection and how to avoid rejection as much as you can, you can find it on iTunes, on Coach Talk Radio. You can also find it on Toginet Radio. There'll be these episodes and then other writing episodes that'll really help you and direct you to great websites out there. But there's a lot of information out there, some of it good, some of it not so good. And so Angela's here today with me so that we can weed through some of the, you know, bad and and point out, you know, where the good is so that you really can know what you don't know. Thank you. And I think if you were to take a look at 
how can you do the best query letter? You know, when you're writing a book or a nonfiction or novel, um, or you're writing even a short story, the first thing I'll tell you to do is throw out your collegiate rules. But when you're doing a query letter, sometimes let's just say the, the ultimate drill down to the basics of, of collegiate, which would mean an outline. Um, and we'll get into synopsis too coming up, but the way that I do query letters and synopsis is I first start with bullet point notes so that I know what's going to be in it. And if I have my bullet points or the skeleton that I create, then I can add the muscle and the, and the flesh and decorate it up. Right. But we really need to drill down to the most basic elements. And so you can ask yourself some questions when you're doing a query letter that will really help you to have this query letter um, liven up and, and show your best foot forward. And so it's all about being concise. It's all about showing the idea, but it's also showing why you are the person for the idea. And that's when you kind of drill it down to those, just those couple things, you're like, Oh, okay. So, and you have to say it in an entertaining way. So that's where your creative writing comes. So you should not jot a query letter in an hour and send it off. That just, no, (laughs) the query letter, you want to put some thought behind and let me give you a couple of pointers for it. Okay. So you, you're either going to do an idea query or you're going to do an outline. And the idea query is if you're doing a book, a novel, um, you're going to want to be able to include maybe some anecdotes or the facts behind this, the story or your research, why it's pertinent today as well. So if you're going to bullet point things out, you want to know just on a regular piece of paper, jot it down or on your computer, jot it down. And then you're going to build your query letter out of these notes. Okay. So here's your skeleton. You want to know what's your subject. You, you know, is it a specific topic that you're, what's the theme, right? And in a single sentence, what do you want it to say to the reader? So if somebody says, what's your book about? You know, um, Bitterroot Bride. That one is, uh, about a young woman who's forced into prostitution who doesn't know how to read and so gets taken advantage of and is close to losing all of her money. But she really wants to be a good person who fits into society. Now that's a little bit lengthy, but that's a great note. So now I can start drilling down and get to um, maybe a shorter. I'm going to grab it really quick and I'm going to read you what it is. Okay. So if I were to put this into a query letter, I would say, no one knows the real Emily Warren, just what they want from the infamous prostitute. Men are coming out of the woodwork to stake a claim on the miner's widow. They wanted her body before. Now they want her money. Hiring a lawyer, Richard Lewis, to save her from financial ruin might let her start over where no one knows Miss Ellie. Becoming an unknown is only one way to freedom. Or is it? Can she leave her past and build a new future? And so now what I've done is I've created an interest in it. That's really the back of the book copy. How can I take that and drill it down into, say, a 30, um, 20 to 30 word sentence? And that's what's going to be your thesis. And then you want your working title. And so my working title was, believe it or not, was Bitter at Bride. And then that's how it, it came out um, because it's set in Montana. 
And this particular story celebrates, she learns to read by uh, joining a club that is a floral club and they're choosing the emblem of the state of Montana. And so it's really kind of fun. She didn't know how to read. So that's part of her characterization. So is it timely? Is there a reason why this is important today? So for, um, let me think, um, The Debutante Queen, when I wrote that book, the reason that it was timely for that day was that the year it came out happened to be the 150th um, anniversary of the state capital, Helena, Montana, which is where the book was set. And so that gave an opportunity for me to get that book out in uh, 2014, and then it's been reprinted in in, uh, several different formats. But that was timely because of the anniversary of the city. So that's going to be an important part. If it's not timely, then you, you know, you leave that element out. Then your style. Is it personal experience for nonfiction? Is it, um, is it fiction? Is it first person? Is it third person? So you're going to want to know that. You're going to want to know why you're the person. Why are you qualified to handle that topic? What kind of writing credits do you have? What kind of expertise or education do you have? Um, I happen to be a Montana resident who has been Mrs. Montana. And so I happen to also be a history buff. And um, I'm getting my degree right now in genealogy and being able to search through for families. And that, a lot of this comes into my brand. So adding those credentials into my query letter but I might also want to add in that I am a certified uh, life coach. I might want to add in that I'm a certified weight loss um, coach or something like that if my book, which I am. But, you know, does it fit this book? If it fits this book, I add in that credential. Um, is it unique? What makes it unique? What makes it what um, we should talk high concept on another one. <laughs> But what makes it special and why would it draw interest now to that story? And then what's the reader going to get out of it? And this is the biggest problem that um, query letters and, and synopsis and back cover copy are usually missing is what the reader is going to get out of it. You don't want to tell the editor um, why you want to write it. You want to tell why the reader wants to read it. And then um, do you have any photos like your headshot or um, is there a photo that really fits the historical place and time that will help them, you know, see why this is so special? You can include that. If not, photos are not really necessary for fiction. Um, but it might be if you're doing something based on a true story. Um, they might love being able to use it if you own the photo for a book cover. You never know. And then how soon is it going to be ready? Is it already written? Um, can you guarantee it in six months? Uh, how far into it are you? And there's there's definitely more that um, we can talk about um, coming up. But I think if you have those notes, you'll be able to begin to form an, a good query letter. 
Well, and I love that those are so specific because some of I'm going to always go back to my little journalism background, but I always would write something and ask the question, who cares? And then I would ask, what's in it for me? Like, what's in it for the agent? What's in it for the reader? You know, what's in it for the public? And then the last rule of thumb that I'm going to give people is that the gut instinct that you have, there's a journalism rule that I learned called, if in doubt, leave it out. And if you are, if there's something that makes you uneasy or something that makes you nervous, there's probably a good reason behind it. We don't need to go to a shrink and figure this out. You're you're working. You're doing the best you can. But if in doubt, read it out. Um, let's uh, you have some control over what your gut instinct tells you, which I think is really powerful. Now I'm going to take us to commercial break. And for those of you wondering how many literary agents, uh, how many letters they get, query letters every day, when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about some of these astounding numbers and why following Angela's rules of writing uh, makes a big difference. We'll be back after the break. Information about book publishing is power. The power to change your authoring life and the power to change the lives of your readers. So join us for Your Guide to Book Publishing. Everything you want to know but didn't know what to ask. With your host, Dr. Judith Bryles. Thursdays at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 Pacific. You'll hear about statistics, scenarios, and strategies on what to do now. As the book shepherd, Dr. Judith Bryles is in. And each week, she will include publishing professionals that will reveal tips and secrets to the author's journey. If there is a book in you, you want to listen, learn, And yes, call in with your questions each week. For more on Judith and what she can do for you, check out her website, thebookshepherd.com. It's your guide to book publishing. Everything you want to know but didn't know what to ask. Brought to you by Author You and The Book Shepherd. With your host, Dr. Judith Bryles. Thursday evenings at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. Hello everybody, this is George Jones from Paranoria, Texas and A Walk in Shadow. And you're listening to AstronetRadio.com. Did you hear about the hound dog that participated in a 13-mile race in Elkmont, Alabama? According to Runner's World, the two-and-a-half-year-old hound dog named Ludivine was just horb-gorbling in her backyard when she heard the runners lining up for the trackless train track half-marathon in the distance. Somehow, she found her way to the starting line and began sprinting alongside the other runners. According to Keith Henry, the winner of the race, Ludivine cut in front of him and the other runners several times. They had to be careful not to trip over the pooch. As it turned out, Ludivine crossed the finish line in 7th place with a time of 1 hour and 33 minutes. According to her owner, that was a pretty impressive showing for a normally scabberlatcher dog. Scabberlatcher is another word for lazy. I'm Carolyn Davidson and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Taking care of Taking care of business every way. 
Hey, guys and dolls, this is Sandra Beck, and as promised, we are here with Angela Breidenbach, and this is the second in our writing series. We're talking today about query letters. Now, I did a little research while Angela was talking about query letters just to see how many query letters a typical agent gets, you know, in a week. And I found a number that kept coming up, anywhere from 95 up to 140. So I just did a little bit of math because most uh, the people that answered this question online said they get anywhere from 20 to 25 a day. And so... Um, that's let's just do the math with a hundred a week. Now, if you multiply that by 52 weeks a year, that's a whole lot of competition. And what was interesting was only 70% of those submissions follow the guidelines. And then you like of that, maybe 10% of those queries are good. So, they respond to about one in 150 requests. Now, I'm not saying this to intimidate you. I'm just saying that if you follow, you know, Angela's writing rules and you really knock it out of the park with a good query letter, you shouldn't be afraid of the competition because 149 of them just aren't aren't good enough because they don't have this knowledge or they're not appropriate or they're not following the guidelines. Um, following the guidelines is really important. Yeah. And it's also important to do it in the order and and not only just follow the guidelines, but do it in the order that is appropriate to the business. So it's like the guidelines um, tell you what's supposed to be in it. And so I can give you a general rule of thumb. But for instance, if you were to go to the Steve Lobby Agency, which is the agency that I belong to, and my agent's Tamela Hancock-Murray, and the president and, and founder of the agency is Steve Lobby, L-A-U-B-E. They have very distinct and specific guidelines for you to follow for submission and um, queries first go to an assistant they don't go directly to the agents anymore um, because of what you said the volume and then they if they find a query they like they'll pass that on to the agent and if the agent um, then says yeah go ahead and get me the proposal then you send the proposal and so it's really important to understand that but for instance the um, different agencies have different proposal um, templates also. And so when I send a proposal to a book editor at a publishing company, um, first I follow the stevelobby.com template that they want me to follow. And then I send it to my agent and then she goes through, double checks it, adds anything she needs to, to it. And then she sends that on, but it follows a specific format and it follows a specific, um, template so uh, the order of what's in it and the reason they do this is that the they network with different um editors and agents um, and publishers you know all over the country all over the world and what's crucial is that they know how those people work they know what they want to see first when they open up that proposal and so we we're using query as a duo thing here. And I want to specify there's a query letter and then there's a proposal. And in a query letter, most of the time you're going to send the query and you might, depending on the guidelines, also attach a short synopsis. And in the short synopsis, it can range one to three pages usually. But when you send in a proposal, you're going to have, um, for instance, a 30 word, a hundred word and a 300 word 
story theme or description. You might call it in, you know, in the movies, you might call it a log line. Um, so how could you describe your, your story in 30 words or less, you know, and then expand that and then expand that again. And once you get through that, you know, now you're going to have your author bio and headshot. And in that bio, that has to have all of your credentials. And so once you have all those credentials in there, now you're going to get into, um, depending on the order that that particular place wants, but see, you can copy paste and move these things around to fit guidelines. You know, now you're going to get into things like, um, the short synopsis, but you also are going to have to figure out which order based on that place of where your marketing plan is going to go and your comparable titles. And so for instance, if I was putting out, a a comparable title to, um, I don't know, pick a book. <laughs> you know, if you, if you put out a comparable title, okay. Lasso by marriage came out with Barber, uh, January, 2016. It's got nine different 20,000 word novellas in it. So there's nine different authors. And if I wanted to find a comparable, I would go online and I might search Amazon or I might search ChristianBookCBD.com or I might search Goodreads and I'd be looking for um, collections stories. You know, I I would look for romance collections that have more than four or five authors, but you could do four if you needed to. But this one's a nine book collection. So I'd want to find a comparable and that would give me a way to say this type of a story this type of a book sold and it's uh, become a number one bestseller or it's or it's a number 20 bestseller that's even great by the way you don't always have to be the number one bestseller and in fact when we talked about rejection in the previous um, episode um, I gave the example of well they didn't want to buy one particular book of mine because it didn't have the same um, platform or following as Snoopy or Garfield well, no kidding. They they started with um, newspapers and went out to building over fifty year period of time. There's no way today I could do that. Um, so, in this particular circumstance, using Snoopy and Garfield actually went against me because I put that in their minds to think about these too big of um, industry books and titles and characters when I was coming out with something new at a different place in time in the world's timeline. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It does make sense. A lot of sense. Um, I want to just chime in real quick here about um, what I call the buckshot approach. And this drives me bananas. Like I have four radio shows and, you know, people will submit all four ideas to four radio shows, even though I have different names, different assistants working on them. And that's really like something that, that makes me not want to put that person on my show ever because like, I just wanted to go back to your, your literary agency and you know, there's four different agents on there and they say specifically, I love this. Like do not send the same proposal to all of us at the same time. And so that's like the equivalent of literary spamming and it's not going to get you noticed. It's going to make people not want to talk to you or not want to read your stuff um, because it's duplication of work. And, I'm right. so frustrated with that, and I just wanted to put that out there because with electronic um, communication, you can just fire bullets at people all day long. And 
realize that not only do people talk within the same agency, but they have relationships with other people. And I work a lot with different publishing houses in New York for bringing guests on to my show. And they always tell me, you know what, Sandra, we love that you just request this author or this topic to one department. You know, I could go to 50 different um, people at Random House, but I don't do the buckshot approach because then people talk and they're like, you're annoying. And we want to work with people who are not only good writers, but that we like also. I think it's really important to follow the agent and um, publishing house on social media, whether it's Facebook or, or Twitter or Pinterest or whatever it is, but definitely follow their blog. Listen and learn to how do they form their sentences? How do they, what kinds of books are they promoting? Because it, once you start to get to know them, even through their writing, even through their blog, then you start to understand who you really would mesh with better, but also who reads what you write. And for instance, the Steve Lottie agency, they don't uh, all represent the same thing, which is the strength of the agency. They have different agents for different topics, you know, or different um, genres. And it's really an important thing to understand that. And then with doing these things with your, you need to learn how to build a proposal. And there's a couple of different books out there, some tools that are awesome. Um, one of them that my friend Randy Ingermanson wrote um, is called Writing Fiction for Dummies. And that's if you really like that type of a style of a book, if you feel like it simplifies things for you, that's a really good one. Um, one of my favorites is How to Write a Book Proposal. And um, that one is by, I think the last name is Brown, B-R-O-W-N-E. And I'll be sure to share that on notes um, that we'll put together for this episode. But those books really helped me to understand. But then also, um, if other authors who are published and who you feel are successful in the genre you want to be in um, are willing to share a proposal with you, and you can kind of see that, you really need to build the relationship with that author first because it's a very vulnerable thing to ask. But sometimes... When you build those relationships, they're willing to share proposals that did work, that sold for them, so that you can see how that put, was put together and why. Um, but again, when you're asking for an author who's on contract and writing and things like that, you're asking for their time, you really need to be respectful of that and not be offended if they don't have time because life happens. And, you know, I think it's really important to realize that there, there possibly a lot of writers work outside as well and and plus they write plus they have families or they're taking care of parents and things are happening in their lives as well so if you build a strong enough relationship um, that you can ask that it's very very helpful well and you know that goes down to like some more about my little my little robert rules of order over here success leaves clues there's a reason why a lot of things are successful versus other things that aren't and yes you can be the groundbreaker you can be the first one you know to publish one of these things and and that's great sure. and everything but i also like to think that we can go through things and go oh i see why that worked and how does that apply to what i'm doing and i really think it's also very important what Angela said about remember that the person receiving your proposal 
is a human being. They're doing the best they can. They have a job. They could have, you know, any number of things going on in their life. So if they don't get back to you in 20 seconds, you know, don't go all postal on them because they can't do it. I get hundreds of submissions every day for my radio shows. And I'm a single mom with two kids and I do the best I can. I try to get back to people in a timely manner, but people can only do what they do. So we're going to come back after the break and we're going to talk more about query letters and proposals. study finds the happiest couples sleep the closest together, as in less than an inch apart. A survey of 1,000 couples found that 86% of those who kept such close perimeters reported they were satisfied with their relationship. Only 66% of couples who slept 30 inches apart or more reported being completely happy in their marriage. What's the word for getting up on the wrong side of the bed? Metutalipia. Another predictor of relationship happiness is touch. While 94% of couples who made physical contact throughout the night reported a happy relationship, just 68% of couples who kept their distance did the same. What's the word for the semi-conscious state between sleep and wakefulness? Hypnopompic. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. When the critters get restless here in the apple tree of weirdness, there's only one thing that calms them down. It's the sounds of astronetradio.com. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert Annette Hammond. That spare tire that many Americans carry around their middle is not only unsightly, it is also dangerous. Abdominal obesity increases your risk of stroke, heart attack, diabetes, and more. Some call it the middle age spread or a beer belly, or muffin top. But the truth is, no matter what you call it, it is just fat. Harvard Medical School says that the culprit is calories. If you take in more calories in food and drink than you burn up with exercise, you'll store excess energy in fat cells. They state that the risk begins to mount at a waist size above 37 inches for men, and a measurement above 40 inches would put you in the danger zone. For women, the corresponding waist sizes are 31 and a half and 35 inches. Exercise is the key to shrinking that belly and dissolving the fat. I'm Annette Hammond. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert Annette Hammond. That spare tire that many Americans carry around their middle is not only unsightly, it is also dangerous. Abdominal obesity increases your risk of stroke, heart attack, diabetes, and more. Some call it the middle age spread, or a beer belly, or muffin top. But the truth is, no matter what you call it, it is just fat. Harvard Medical School says that the culprit is calories. If you take in more calories in food and drink than you burn up with exercise, you'll store excess energy in fat cells. They state that the risk begins to mount at a waist size above 37 inches for men, and a measurement above 40 inches would put you in the danger zone. 
For women, the corresponding waist sizes are 31 and a half and 35 inches. Exercise is the key to shrinking that belly and dissolving the fat. I'm Annette Hammond. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. That spare tire that many Americans carry around their middle is not only unsightly, it is also dangerous. Abdominal obesity increases your risk of stroke, heart attack, diabetes, and more. Some call it the middle-aged spread, or a beer belly, or muffin top. But the truth is, no matter what you call it, it is just fat. Harvard Medical School says that the culprit is calories. If you take in more calories in food and drink than you burn up with exercise, you'll store excess energy in fat cells. They state that the risk begins to mount at a waist size above 37 inches for men, and a measurement above 40 inches would put you in the danger zone. For women, the corresponding waist sizes are 31 and a half and 35 inches. Exercise is the key to shrinking that belly and dissolving the fat. I'm Annette Hammond. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert Annette Hammond. That spare tire that many Americans carry around their middle is not only unsightly, it is also dangerous. Abdominal obesity increases your risk of stroke, heart attack, diabetes, and more. Some call it the middle-aged spread, or a beer belly, or muffin top. But the truth is, no matter what you call it, it is just fat. Harvard Medical School says that the culprit is calories. If you take in more calories in food and drink than you burn up with exercise, you'll store excess energy in fat cells. They state that the risk begins to mount at a waist size above 37 inches for men, and a measurement above 40 inches would put you in the danger zone. For women, the corresponding waist sizes are 31 and a half and 35 inches. Exercise is the key to shrinking that belly and dissolving the fat. I'm Annette Hammond. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert Annette Hammond. That spare tire that many Americans carry around their middle is not only unsightly, it is also dangerous. Abdominal obesity increases your risk of stroke, heart attack, diabetes, and more. Some call it the middle-aged spread, or a beer belly, or muffin top. But the truth is, no matter what you call it, it is just fat. Harvard Medical School says that the culprit is calories. If you take in more calories in food and drink than you burn up with exercise, you'll store excess energy in fat cells. They state that the risk begins to mount at a waist size above 37 inches for men, and a measurement above 40 inches would put you in the danger zone. For women, the corresponding waist sizes are 31 and a half and 35 inches. Exercise is the key to shrinking that belly. And Taking care of business. Hey guys and dolls, this is Sandra Beck and I'm here with Angela Breidenbach and we are talking today about uh, query letters and proposals and how to get along in the publishing industry as you peddle your stories, peddle your wares. And there's kind of an art to it. And some people are really good at it. Some people are not. And so we're here to give you some success tips because success leaves clues. You just have to look for them. Angela, what do you find is was one of the hardest things for you when you were in the proposal process or the query process? Um, I think Wow, that's a really great question. (laughs) 
But I, I think it was um, seeing the the query. I, I see things a little differently, but maybe other writers will understand this. Seeing the query as a short story, you know, that you have to have a beginning, a middle, and the end in the query. And that you have to have all of, this is where I, I say, this is where collegiate writing is sort of good. It's the elements of it. You don't want the sound of it, but you want the elements of it. You want the, the beginning, the middle, and the end. So you want the sales pitch. You want the proof, which means the support of why. And that includes the, you know, the idea of the story, but also you could put in the characters' names and um, a little bit about those characters. But then, you know, toward the end, you want to wrap it up with, and this is why you want to buy that from me because the reader's going to get this out of my book, you know, type of thing. And that, so the hardest part was, was seeing the whole thing in an overview because it's hard to fit all of the different elements that people want into one page. Really hard. But that's the art of being a writer, isn't it? It is. It is. And communicating, clearly communicating. You know, it's hard for me, you know, and I'm just going to relate it to being on the radio. It's hard for me when somebody doesn't get to the point and mm-hmm. somebody tells me they want to come on the air and promote their story or their book or their ebook or their concept. They can't give it to me in like 10 seconds or less. I'm already bored. I'm already thinking about something else. And it's not my job to weed through what you have to figure out what you're selling i don't have that kind of time in my day and i don't want to do it it's it's like when you 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 want to give somebody the concept of smelling the popcorn and so what you want to do in your query is you know what movie theaters used to do is they used to have a hole in the wall and so when they were popping their popcorn they would then blow a fan and blow the scent of popcorn into the movie theater and that wow did you know that? No. That's a true historical fact. And um, so then people would come running out to buy popcorn because it would tickle their senses and they would then be hungry, right? Well, that's what Aquarius. You're blowing the scent of your popcorn into the editor's office so that they want to buy a bag of popcorn. And to be able to buy the bag of popcorn, that's that's when they say, yes, send the full proposal. And they'll tell you, do they want a partial or a full? And a partial usually means three chapters. The first three chapters, by the way, and a synopsis. And in the synopsis, this is something that's very, very important. Um, You have to tell the ending. And I didn't realize that at the beginning. And so I was trying to leave the question to hook the editor. But what I didn't realize was in the beginning, they needed to um, read the end, know that the story tied up satisfactorily. They needed to know the story so they could then decide if they wanted to buy it, if I could actually write a satisfactory story with a satisfactory ending. So your your query is blowing in the popcorn scent. And then your proposal is they bought the bag of popcorn. And then are they going to buy the ticket and stay in the movie? You know, that's that. such a beautiful way to put it. That's so much nicer than who cares what's in it for me and can I sell this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because a lot of these um, editors too and, and agents, they go into meetings. Like this is the other thing I want to talk about, you know, because I spent time at Disney and CBS uh, prior to what I do uh, now. Um, but 
one of the things that would happen is we would get all excited about a high concept or get excited about a treatment, you know, which is something that, you know, we, we terms we used in that industry, but we would sit in a meeting and we would want to know what this is about. How does it end? You know, what makes it interesting or unique? Because most of the time, these decisions are not just made by one person. Now they might initially be made by an assistant, a literary assistant that weeds through things to make sure, you know, things are on a certain checklist but at some point somebody's going to have to speak on your behalf quickly get to the point and and let people know in their group because now their reputation is on the line and that's one of the things that I don't think a lot of writers realize yeah I think it is and when you go into you you send the proposal that editor then loves the proposal let's say they do and they become your champion and this is where I'm going to draw back to our, our rejection talk a little bit ago on the other episode because I had an editor absolutely love a proposal of, of a book that I sent in and she took it to pub board, which is what, when they get together in a commit and basically they're, they're everybody that's involved in the purchasing of that book in the agency or the, um, some agencies work this way, but definitely publishers do. And so they're going to bring everybody together. Usually once a week, you're going to have the acquiring editors. You're going to have all of the different people, the marketing people. You're going to have everybody that's involved in purchasing that book. And that champion, your editor, your champion has to go in there and win that battle because all the other acquiring editors are going in championing another book. And so when they spit out in your 30 word sentence, what your book's about, they want to raise goosebumps and the the significant oh from everybody else around the table. If they can't do that because we haven't been concise enough and had the and here's the key has to be a what if question. I've heard this in writers conferences. I've heard it from mentoring authors. For me, I've heard it. Um, I just read it in an article from Writers Digest from another author. And he was writing about the, the high concept and I loved his article and I'll have to go find his, his name on Twitter for y'all. Um, but it was really important that it starts with a, a what if question. What if then what'll happen? And it's so important that they don't understand, um, you know, that if they don't have a what if question, they don't really have a story from us. So crucial. To have that kind of a thing. Oh, it was by Jeff Lyons. And if you want to follow him on Twitter, it's Story Geeks. S-T-O-R-Y-G-E-E-K-S. Story Geeks. He wrote a wonderful um, article in Writer's Digest on the seven points of high concept. And That's- I highly suggest reading that. You know what, I'm going to take this over to the next uh, segment because this is really important. You know, I love these little formulas, you know, like what if, then, what will happen. So I've got to go to commercial break. We're visiting today with Angela Breidenbach. And if you guys like this episode, go to toginet.com under Coach Talk Radio. You'll see our writing series there. You can go to iTunes, Coach Talk Radio. You can also go to coachtalkradioshow.com and find this and other episodes like it. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk a little bit more about this what if then what will happen
many prospective college students work under the management of handlers. A tutor helps with SAT preparation, while a consultant concocts the perfect resume to present to colleges. They say the closest people ever come to perfection is on their resume. But college admission staffs aren't so bubbleable. That means gullible when it comes to sorting out students' qualifications. What's another word for a person with enough education to go to college? A tancom. The graduation cap was initially a hood and is believed to date back to the Celtic times when druid priests wore capes and hoods to symbolize their intelligence. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. When the critters get restless here in the apple tree of weirdness, there's only one thing that calms them down. It's the sounds of astronetradio.com. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert Annette Hammond. If you experience joint pain, remember, weight matters. Being overweight is not good for your health for a multitude of reasons, but joint pain is especially affected by weight. Harvard Medical School reports that simply walking across level ground puts up to one and a half times your body weight on your knees. That means that with each step, a 200-pound man will deliver 300 pounds of pressure to his knee. Off level ground, the news is worse. Each knee bears two to three times your body weight when you go up and down stairs and four to five times your body weight when you squat to tie a shoelace. Losing weight is the key. One study found that the risk of developing osteoarthritis dropped 50% with each 11-pound weight loss among younger obese women. Weight matters. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Taking care of business every day. Taking care of business every way. Hey, guys and dolls. This is Sandra Beck, and I'm here with my lovely co-host, Angela Breidenbach, and we are talking today about query letters and proposals and that that aspect of the writer's life. Now, uh, earlier on in today's episode, we talked about one of Angela's favorite books, and I actually have it in my bookcase too. It's a it's a great book. It's twelve bucks. How to write a book proposal by Michael Larson. I want to be clear that none of these uh, agents or writing groups or writing classes, book proposals, they have not paid us for promotion on this show. Angela and I are just here sharing what works for us. We know that there's lots of great books and programs out there, but we we can only share with you what we know and what has worked with us. So uh, that being said, you have another article, Angela, that you said um, was a good one. And this one's at writersdigest.com. What is this one? Yes, this one, I, I loved it. I just recently read it. It was actually written January 21st, 2014, but it fits very, very well today. And it came out of a group um, called RWA PAN, which is the Published Authors Network. Um, they... You don't share anything that comes out of that group unless it's like a public link. And so um, this one happens to be a public link. And it's Write Better, The Seven Qualities of High Concept Stories. And the guest columnist, like I said, is Jeff Lyons. And you can follow him on Twitter at StoryGeeks. At StoryGeeks is his handle. And he's very personable. I've just been tweeting back and forth with him the last couple of days. Real fun because I told him I liked his article. <laughs> So um, that's another way that you can build friendships and networks in the industry is 
follow somebody and be honest, be genuine. Do you like this? Do you like that? And then um, promote them, pay it forward. And when you start to do this, this helps to raise your um, level of believability in the world because you care about sharing what someone else did. And in this case, um, I really want you to go read this, Write Better, The Seven Qualities of High Concept Stories. And it really fits well, not only with literary, but say you want to be a screenwriter. Um, it really fits well. And he does an explanation of every single thing. But I'm going to just beep up through the main um, the main seven elements for you. And then I'll let you read them in detail. But the seven qualities of high concept stories, they have a high level of entertainment value, not just to your mom or your best friend, but to the world. <laughs> they have a high degree of originality. And this one we do need to go into, but we're going to go into it in a minute. They're born from the what if question. What if then? And here's the other key of what if. You have to what if yourself through your story. So like I told you earlier, I'm in the process of writing a, a novella that is about a bucket list, right? And this this should come out in October if all things go well with a, another group of gals. And um, I'm really excited about it because these are just wonderful ladies and their ideas are bucket list ideas, right? So this, this novella collection is born from the what if question. What if we wanted to achieve our bucket list? That was the what if question. So that's where this story is coming out of. But then as I'm writing my story, I started out with what if you couldn't afford it because you got fired right away? And now you've already made a promise and you'll let not only yourself down, but your friends, but you'll never achieve your bucket list. What would you do? And so really that's the what if question. But throughout the story that you're writing, um, Bitter at Bride, what if the character was a prostitute? What if she didn't know how to read? What if she was being taken advantage of and nobody cared? What if one person cared? What if... She did learn to read. What if? Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And if you then, you can find your black moment as well by saying, what if everything went wrong? What would that thing be? What would that person do? So what if then? So when she gets taken advantage of and bitter at bride and um, the her dead husband's partner uh, uh, takes action to take everything from her because she has two minds. He's going to go in and he's going to steal her minds. You know, what would she do to be able to stop that? And how much time does she have? So now we have a time element introduced. So what if time is of the essence, you know, and how do you make it that way? And the then is the reaction to the what if question, the character's reaction, the plot reaction, you know, um, other characters' reactions. And that's when we can get into things like scene sequel, which we'll get into in the, in the future episodes. But you also want it to be highly visual, meaning you, you not only want the, the words on the page to sing in your mind, you want to create a visual in the mind of the reader. And this also helps you if you write a book, taking a book to a movie concept. If you've written a book that is very, very, um, cerebral and it happens all in the character's mind it is very difficult for that book to then transfer over and become a movie 
There has to be a way for not only your reader to visualize what's happening, but also for that to be translated to a movie camera. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then they want a clear emotional focus. And in this clear emotional focus, what is the essence of the story? Is it love? Is it hate? Is it whatever? You know, and I want you to read um, more of what this writer writes in his um, article because it's in-depth. It's wonderful. And then you need to include some truly unique element. This is where your voice can come in, where you place it in time. Um, Atlantis, the the sci-fi show, one of my favorites, takes the Egyptian... um, gods and goddesses and takes those Egyptian characters and says, what if they were aliens? They're not really gods. They're really a higher formed alien who knows how to transport themselves through space and time. You know, that's the what if question, but it's also a truly unique element dealing with Egyptology, right? So it's kind of, that's why Atlantis became such a big hit movie and then television series. Um, so, um, or Stargate, sorry. Um, and then Stargate then spawned Atlantis. Sorry. Got my, got them. <laughs> no, but the point where the point that we want to take away from this is that, that unique element, like what right. makes and a unique element really gets your juices flowing because, mm-hmm. you know, there's lots of similar stories out there. It's like whatever the 20 master plot guy tells you, you know, there's only 20 master plots and whatever. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things that I, I look at those 20 master plots and I think, you know, if you ask the what if, like, you know, what if this happened, you know, or, you know, what if then happened, you know, that's such a powerful writing tool. And I think that can get you out of writer's block too, because even if you're having a glass of wine at night and laughing yourself silly by yourself in the dark, in your office, which I've done, Uh um, and I don't drink, I just resorted to, to going, okay, I got to loosen up. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to drink this glass of wine and I don't drink. And it was just so funny because I thought of the absurdity and, you know, you can, you can get yourself out of some of these ruts just by asking these seven questions, you know, does it have entertainment value? Is it original? What's the what if question? Is it born from that? highly visual does it have the clear emotional focus and to me the inclusion of some truly unique element is really some so much of the fun it is and i've i've taken some of my dear friends with to lunch and say i'm buying lunch if you will help me brainstorm this and we what if something to death and one of my dear friends her name is julie cowan and she owns cowan creative and word critter and she um what she does is she can help do like designs or logos or um, she can help you. She does some awesome things in creating um, and she's very creative, but she doesn't write fiction, but she does these massive, wonderful memorial books. So if a loved one has passed away, she'll do a memorial book for you about their life. And it's so, so beautiful. And what a, a, a ministry to, to people to do something like that. And she does them for, people's weddings and you know this kind of a thing and it's like when she goes to lunch with me she doesn't write what i write she creates in a different way but she will what if to death with me and we just have the best brainstorming time so do that with your friends and they maybe they're not a writer but maybe they're another creative or maybe they just like brainstorming or thinking of ideas this is a great way to get those high concept stories and then also how you can add that into your um, query letter in your synopsis, you can actually start, what if this? 
than this, you know, and you can write it in a really nice way. So the last one, the number seven is mass mark, mass audience appeal. And um, he has in parentheses to a broad general audience or a large niche market. And that is, I really strongly suggest that you go through and you read this entire article and it does have some, the, the mass audience appeal is, is a really hard one because it's like, well, everybody will like my book. No, not everyone will. Even the people that you think will like your book, not everyone will. And one stars do exist. Um, I actually had a party when I got my first one star because I felt like it mattered that somebody took the time to um, do a one star. And if you don't have a range of one, two, three, four, five stars or stuff, nobody's going to really believe the credibility of your work. They're going to think it's all your best friends out there, you know, putting that down. So again, remember statistics are not just about rejection. Statistics are not just about how many queries you got. It's a really important thing to do to understand that it's just statistics to getting through. Um, let me tell you a great um, story element or storybook is is actually called Story by Robert McKee. And then I also love, um, and th- it does have a little bit of language in it, and it's important to note that um, if you're going to do um, fire and fiction or writing a breakout novel by Donald Moss, M-A-A-S-S, he is a, he's a New York City agent. But there's, there's, he uses examples that have a little bit of language in them. So I just want to warn you right up front. Um, I tend to learn to skip words like that, but, um, and I only, I, I just want you to be aware. But those okay. are some great tools. Great. Those are great, great references. Our guest today is Angela, our, our guest and co-host is um, Angela Breidenbach. You can find her at AngelaBreidenbach.com. You can go to Amazon and look up her books. You can find her books everywhere. I think they're great reads and they illustrate a lot of what she's teaching. So if you grab a copy of her book and you you follow along with the different things that we're teaching today, I think it can be a really powerful tool. Uh, the, the book story by Robert McKee and then writing the breakout novel, both available on Amazon. Again, nobody has paid for us to promote these. These are just great books that we have in our arsenal. They're more tools so you can know what you don't know. When we come back from, uh, when we come back, uh, next week, I guess, wow, we're already through the show. Um, we will be back next week talking about conferences and associations. AngelaBreidenbach.com will be back again next week. Thank you for listening. On behalf of Sandra Beck and Scott Frazier, we want you to get out there today to make more money with less time and effort so you can live the life you want. Tune in next week for more tips, tricks, and techniques from Coach Talk Radio.